Celebrate the launch of the DSR Spy Show featuring Mark Polymeropoulos by becoming a member. Members receive bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, the DSR Daily Brief newsletter, an invitation to participate in the DSR Slack community, and more. Through Memorial Day, listeners of Mark's show can receive 50% off our regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MARK, M-A-R-C-P. That's thedsrnetwork.com and code MARK, P. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, happy Memorial Day. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. on this holiday. That's when we're taping it. You may be listening to it, I don't know, six months from now. But the good thing is you're listening to it because we've got a great conversation ahead of us. This is the Spy Show with Mark Palomaropoulos. So that means, of course, that I am joined by Mark Palomaropoulos, who is, I don't know, somewhere in the vicinity. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing well. I'm in uh, Northern Virginia. Did not go to the Outer Banks this weekend. The weather was was crappy, so I stayed around in uh, in D.C. and I'm glad I did. So, so, you, so you go from Washington D.C. six hours away to the Outer Banks, like on a regular. It's my happy place, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a place. After I came back from Afghanistan for a year uh, tour, I went down there for six weeks to decompress, and I fell in love with it. Um, no, no. So well, it's a lot of really important memories for me there. So I, that's, uh, I, I've not been in Afghanistan, although I've been in the very, very close vicinity of Afghanistan. And I have to say the Outer Banks is somewhat better. Slightly, uh, yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a slight improvement. Uh, we are very fortunate to be joined today by uh, Douglas Wise, who is a distinguished uh, a former CIA uh, 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 officer who has... Uh, held a number of posts, most recently finishing his career a few years ago as deputy director of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, where he was effectively the chief operating officer for 20,000 employees there at the DIA. Uh, his career is extremely distinguished and varied, and we'll get into all of that in a minute. But for now, uh, welcome, Doug. How are you? Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. It's an honor and a pleasure, and it's a great opportunity for me and uh, Mark to work together again, as we have several times in the past. And it's particularly memorable on this day, you know, this weekend, where we honor the sacrifices of our military sisters and brothers. And of course, uh, you know, as Mark has probably said several times in previous podcasts, you know, we've lost a number of close personal friends and colleagues in the fight against terrorism as well. So, so thanks for inviting me to, to join, and uh, I'm honored to be here. Well, we're honored to have you, and I think uh, one of the things we hope to do in this show on a regular basis is to honor all those who have served and uh, sacrificed. Uh, let me turn to Mark, and, and, and uh, since he knows you best, and, and let him offer you the first question. 
Sure. And, and just a, just a one quick, quick opening on that, on, on something Doug said, you know, one of the things on, on Memorial Day, I always wonder, and Doug, I'm curious your, your thoughts on this too, you know, uh, so what do you say? Happy Memorial Day. I mean, I, I always sometimes feel guilty on this day, um, you know, and, and then but then I, I think back to to a time when you and I were together when when there was a terrible tragedy at the agency, we lost officers and um, you actually helped me in, in managing a station um, that was going through some serious trauma. Um, but I think back to one of those officers, you know, uh, if he looked at us now and I think he would tell us, you know, go have a beer today, you know, grill a steak you know, live life to the fullest, um, you know, think of us, but don't, don't feel guilty uh, uh, on this day. So before we jump into the first question, just, just kind of your thoughts on that, on, on how you as a, as a, you know, U.S. A CI veteran, a soft veteran, uh, what are your emotions like today? Yeah, it, it, emotions are, I don't know whether any other veteran shares these emotions, but they're mine, I guess, so I'll own them. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time over the past couple of days reflecting on those with whom I served, yourself, uh, you know, and many others, and also those that uh, I've lost, both as uh, Army soft colleagues as well as CIA colleagues. And I think you're absolutely right. I, I think there's 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 no label you need to put on. I think there's no greeting. I think uh, you're perf- you said it perfectly well that I think all of those fallen would want us to enjoy the benefits of their sacrifice and that they would want us to not sit around and mope and mourn. They'd want us to rejoice in the freedoms uh, that, that we enjoy here in America. And those freedoms, you know, didn't come naturally. They came from great effort uh, and great sacrifice. So I think that's the way I look at it. He would get quiet and he'd hang a flag. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, it really meant a lot to him. Uh, and he wanted it to mean a lot to us. And uh, I, you know, I mean, everybody re- relates to it in a different way. I remember seeing his World War II uniform hanging in our, his closet. And, you know, to me, it was kind of like, oh, that meant he was a kind of a superhero. Um, you know, you just sort of have this sense when it's somebody close to you. Uh, I think it's hard to have that sense when there are people you don't know, but I think we need to make the effort. In any event, Mark. No, David, well, well said. You know, it, there's, there's, wow, there's so much to say on this uh, on this subject, but I think let's let's transition uh, to something that's that's similar because we're talking about the U.S. military today and, and Memorial Day. And so, you know, Doug, you had a you had such a unique career in that you know it spanned both your career in the U.S. Special Operations community and then uh, at the Central Intelligence Agency, and and you were extremely su- successful in both. One of the things that I noticed, um, uh, or that we kind of that that evolved over our time, is post nine eleven is how we worked with the special operations world. Um, uh, and in fact, we kind of grew up with them, uh, you know, serving in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Somalia and Yemen and other places to the point where, you know, you had leaders on both sides um, uh, or, or, you know, uh, junior officers of both sides who ended up becoming leaders of the organization. So and kind of long winded question is, you know, as as the war on terrorism is over in some sense, um, uh, you know, what do you think is the future of that of that CIA U.S. military or the CIA special operations community relationship? Where does it go now in the area of great power competition, Russia, China? You know, is there a future there like we had for 20 years? 
Well, it's a good question. And I think the, uh, the, the two communities are going to drift apart. Uh, the origin of our close cooperation, obviously, CIA sprang from the loins of OSS. And so you think there'd be a high amount of military affinity within the agency. And you think there might be a, a, a reciprocal amount of affinity within the soft community as well. But instead, I mean, there, there are two different structures, two different missions, two, two different sets of authorities, two different cultures. And so it takes a lot of effort to, to one, do, do the, uh, the tinder match between soft and CIA. And it takes an awful lot of effort to take that match and turn it into a marriage. And then it takes an even greater amount of effort to sustain that relationship over a lifetime. And quite frankly, when I began life as a, as a detailee in, in CIA, I think there were six of us. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the antipathy for the active duty military was palpable. And, uh, you know, I was invested in, in the, then the emerging brand spanking new counterterrorism center. So my existence in the counterterrorism center was probably a reflection of antipathy toward that non-geographic transnational experiment that nobody liked. And so why waste a perfectly good CIA officer when you can invest, you know, a U.S. military detailee? And so that, that's how it began. And, you know, we ended up doing uh, interagency things as, as CIA does. Uh, and I think the origins of our modern cooperation were forged in Bosnia, quite frankly. Uh, can't share a lot of the details, but to your point, uh, one of my close contacts in the U.S. Special Forces happened to be a young captain named Scotty Miller, who ended up being four-star general ISAF commander Scotty Miller many years later. And so we began learning, you know, we did things right, we did things wrong, both communities. At that point in time in Bosnia, it was shared mission, a little shared risk, but each of us on both sides committed to each other's success. And so the small number of us that were part of that connective tissue, if I could say that, you know, we're learning how to respect each other's organization capabilities, strengths and weaknesses to appreciate the value of their culture and how to bring that all together. And so that then blossomed into post 9-11, where, you know, you and I found ourselves in Afghanistan. Uh, and, uh, you know, those lessons learned that we had, you know, acquired through a lot of hard work and a lot of Dispilation of mythology and an erosion of, of misconception about each other. You know, it played a huge, huge role in the collective success of military soft and CIA's presence in the response to 9-11. And then those relationships grew and grew and grew. The problem is by the time that we ended our, our, our efforts in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, for example, in Iraq, I had 1,100 officers under my supervision as a chief of station. Every one of those young women and men, just like they were in Afghanistan, just like they were where you served, neighboring to, uh, to Iraq. Uh, we learned a lot about each other. We exploited each other's strengths. We mitigated each other's shortcomings. We fused our capabilities together in order to 
accomplish job one, which is keep American kids alive, and job two, to enable those that were smoking the guys that were creating the risk and caused the existence of job one. And that was thousands and thousands of CIA officers and large numbers of soft and even conventional military operators that ended up having that experience, shared mission, shared risk, mutual development and mutual respect. And now, of course, there's a very small number of our colleagues on both sides, both on SOCOM side as well as on the CIA side, that will have the benefit of the experience that you and I, Mark, had over a lifetime in CIA. And there's a very small number of those officers that will experience what you and I experienced in the bilateral operational relationship between CIA and our soft colleagues. And so my fear, fear is probably too strong a word. My concern and apprehension is that the two communities will eventually grow apart and will settle back in with those misconceptions that that negative mythology is now going to creep back in. And, uh, and it, just going to be a very difficult time because the large numbers of officers on both sides are not going to be available to bring us back together again. So, so let me follow up on Mark's question because I, I think you've addressed well um, where we were and and what that means for the moment. But I'm interested, and it's something we've talked about already in the first couple episodes about this transition to a new era. Your career in the uh, agency sort of followed a, an arc where the primary focus was the global war on terror for most of it. Um, and of course, we got that wrong. I was in the Clinton administration, and I remember when it was considered a great innovation to set up a desk at the agency that followed, at the time we referred to him as UBL. Um, uh, and I, you know, I thought it was kind of a mistake to set up a desk to follow a non-state actor that looked a lot like the state desks that we had. Um, and it took a lot of adaptation to the circumstances. And certainly in Iraq, our, our policies took a lot of adaptation. We learn slowly in the United States government. And so now here we are essentially making the pivot that we've been talking about for a long time, um, where the top priority is China. We talk about Russia, but I think there's a hope that people will, that that will recede somewhat, though, of course, there's no guarantee it will. Um, but we're not only dealing with a transition to uh, a, a near-peer rival like China that has global competitive ambitions, but may not have global ambitions of conflict, um, at least not for the near future. Um, but at the same time, we're going through a massive technological change, a change that's, in my mind, akin to the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it's it's that big, the move towards uh, AI, the move towards um, uh, other new technologies. Of, uh, I mean, nano is relevant in the world that you guys come from, the, the ability to essentially create a ubiquitous sensing uh, ubiquitous observation that's not human driven. Um, how well, from your observation, do you think we're adapting? And more importantly, wh what are you worried about? 
Uh, it's a great, great question. Uh, the transition from, you know, the global war on terror to the great power competition, I think CIA will make that transition much faster and is making it already much faster than perhaps our soft colleagues are. Although having most recently, at least within the past several weeks, you know, pitched up for 10 days with our soft colleagues, I can tell you that they're certainly, they're aware that they have to change. They're already making change. They're committed to that change because they're trying to figure out doctrinally where they fit into this new competitive world order. The transition for CIA was relatively easy because our authorities, our structures, and our culture, and our training and skills most align with dealing with nation states rather than with individuals. Um, and so I think our transition is going to be a little bit easier than the, than the military transition uh, within the special operations community. You hit on an interesting point, and I'm sure that uh, you've already covered this with the, your other podcast visitors. But uh, as you said, David, the you know we are now by virtue of technology able to create this ubiquitous collection regime and uh, Hoover up just volumes and quality and quantity and continuing refreshing of data to give decision advantage to our national and operational decision makers. And that's a great thing for America. The problem is that our allies or our adversaries also can apply that same technology against us. Thus, the challenge for the U.S. and our uh, allied intelligence partners is how do you deal with that? I'm sure it's been discussed multiple times. You know, the notion of, of an alias persona is going to be extreme. It's going to be impossible, except in some very, very narrow uses for a very, very short time. And I think the kind of skills that we apply as human intelligence officers, as clandestine officers, uh, I think is going to be tremendously, already tremendously affected. I mean, look at the uh, CCTV, you know, smart cities uh, and the impact on our ability to move undetected in a smart city is nearly impossible these days. But I think in the end, I'm, I'm very confident that I don't do any work with the U.S. intelligence community. So that which I know of their own adaptation and, tr and transition uh, comes from uh, hearsay from sometimes specious colleagues like uh, Paula Maropoulos. But the uh, uh, but, you know, I am confident that, you know, although as you would as you would agree, uh, you know, governments are big, they're sludgy, they turn slowly, they adapt slowly, they're very conservative in their uh, embracing of anything new, right? Because they're the sacred duty of, you know, not wanting to waste taxpayers' preciously acquired money. Uh, you know, you got to be very careful. But I think CIA has, has compared to other parts of the government as, and I, and let me just say the U.S. intelligence community, you know, I think has an, an, a culture of adaptation that might not exist elsewhere and benefits because it's smaller, it's more agile. And I think the workforce, we have a culture of, of being iconoclastic and, and risk taking that doesn't exist in the DOD, uh, to, to, 
to any degree at all in my experience. So, so I, I think we're facing some significant challenges. I like to think, and I'm confident that our colleagues, the women and men in the IC, and even the women and men at SOF, I think will will step up to the challenge of adaptation. It's our soft colleagues have a dual problem. They've got to adapt their own doctrine, tactics, and techniques, and structures, and culture, you know, to the new U.S. armed forces. But they also have to do their own transition away from the kind of traditional things that they've done since 9-11 and figure out, you know, what's the good from that? How can they extract the things that are applicable and relevant to the to the great power competition, and they have to turn the crank on all that. So I think it's going to be extremely challenging for both communities. And back to my earlier comments, I think the more we talk, the more we engage, the more we share lessons and experiences from our respective transitions, I think the better off America is going to be, more effective we're going to be against these allies or these adversaries that are, as you said, quite sophisticated, quite committed, even if not in a kinetic way in, in the way of China. But the reality is, you know, we've got to figure out what is all of what we, the two organizations are, SOF and CIA, try to figure out what that means in this kind of wacky world we're finding ourselves. Yeah, I should say, Mark, just before you go, I was just talking to a friend who's uh, uh, in China at the moment. And and I don't think we in the United States fully understand the concept of what a, a quote smart or surveillance society is, because you know there, the there's constant surveillance, constant use of biometrics. Everybody who comes in has retinal scans and face scans, and this is it, it, deep into the heart of China. Um, so, you know, this idea of, you know, uh, operating clandestinely in a society like this, it's, 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 it's not that it's impossible, but it's, 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 it's becoming much more, uh, difficult. And that's not the only place in the world. I think a lot of Americans, uh, the, and this is really my point, underestimate the degree of sophistication of other societies in this regard. Well, if I could jump in before Mark uh, asks a question, I mean, if you look back on the control that the Nazi party had over Germany in the, in the, in the interwar era, as well as during the World War II, that is all without technology. All they had was radio and, and newspaper, ironclad control, total domination over the society, total socialization and acculturation of, of the German people to this horrific, uh, horrific, uh, regime. That's all without technology. Now, if you take that ability back in the deeply analog days and you sit and apply technology and you can see where you can go from Nazi Germany to what you have, which is the total control of everything that societies will do, not do, think, not think, eat, not eat, where they go, not go, what they say, not say, what they write, what not write. I mean, extraordinary. And I think you're absolutely right. We have no concept of what it must be like to live in a completely technologically 
and despotic, you know, society such as you find in the People's Republic of China. So let's let's, let's actually make a it's a perfect time to transition um, uh, uh, to Russia. Um, uh, and by the way, that was a, a very dark and sobering discussion right there, which made me, uh, uh, you know, think that uh, think of the challenges of our, of our colleagues. One quick point on that, though. I think that we do have to still abide by the mantra that CIA can meet a human agent anywhere. Um, we can never let that go, despite all of the advances in biometrics, smart cities, et cetera. We still have to be able to look at an agent uh, in their face and do a personal meeting. So I hope that's still the uh, the guiding principle of our old colleagues. But let's switch to Russia for a second. But along uh, along uh, these lines, in terms of of you know, you know people who live in autocratic societies, you know there was a, there was a recent CIA video, uh, Doug, that was put on Telegram, which in essence is a social media channel which is very prevalent uh, inside Russia, and it was it, it was in essence uh, uh, an appeal to disaffected Russians to perhaps work for the United States government. Um, I saw the video. Uh, I thought it was actually very well done. Um, uh, both for the, the reason that perhaps they will be able to uh, attract some volunteers uh, who would have access to non-pro, you know, to, to privileged information if they work in the Russian government, but also as it was a pretty effective trolling mechanism. Um, you know, if, if the Russians were winning in Ukraine, this video would not be produced. Um, and it did drive the Russian government uh, relatively crazy because they actually commented on it, put out their own version of it. Uh, so your, your thoughts on this, your thoughts on, on what's happening in the war in Ukraine, we haven't asked about it yet. And that's, that's of course, your, your, um, uh, your view on this is, is most welcome. Um, and, uh, uh, and one other piece, too, um, just the notion of, of the intelligence community and what they've done uh, uh, for the last year, because I think that's a, that's a story that is yet to be told um, at some of the successes that we've had, starting with, you know, in essence, predicting the invasion. Yeah, let me take uh, the uh, the recent CIA video, but let me let me offer a suggestion of what I think is the impact in the reverse order. The first thing to to note is that it shows that CIA is ado- is adopting modern technology to deal with modern audiences, and those audiences being the pool from which we draw, you know, human agents. Right. The second is to troll and poke our finger in the eye of the Russian government to say, hey, we can manipulate, we can get involved in the information war very overtly as well as you can. So we're now going to use this modern technology to really create an even playing field in terms of information dominance. And then the third thing is obviously to really educate the proto-agents out there the folks that really hate the regime, that really have suffered, uh, who have uh, information to offer that may, in fact, result in a world that would be better for for Russia and who have never had an idea as to how to convey the information they have into the hands of the Western intelligence services. So I think it was a brilliant initiative. I saw the video as well. And I, although I'm not a Russia expert by any means, uh, I thought it was well done structurally, well, well done in flow and timing, well done culturally. And I thought it was a perfect timing for the issuance of this video at the point where I think Russia is really reached, I won't say the peak of suffering and perhaps civic dissatisfaction, but it really will show those who are on Telegram 
that, that we're listening, we're there, we're available, and you can talk to us about anything that you want to talk to us about. And so not only information flow, but we can also convey back to back to those who are on Telegram that want to engage us as well. So I think it is a, is a tremendous capability. Regarding Ukraine, uh, you know, I think it, what the most important thing is to remember that uh, this was not a foreign policy decision by Russian by the Russian Federation. This was a personal decision by Vladimir Putin. Totally different. As David knows from his own service at the highest levels of our government, you know, the president expects the National Security Council, National Security Staff, and the entire extended U.S. government to identify opportunities and, and, and threats to our democracy. And then they bring, you know, enlightenment to the president. The president says, I'm concerned or I want to take advantage. Go come back to me with some options. They come back with options. He picks one. He then said one or two. And then he says, go, go, go give me a plan. He approves whatever the plan is. That's the way national decision, national security decisions are made, at least in a healthy democracy. You may recall some years ago where we all saw in the Great Hall in the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin sitting there about 50 yards away from his own cabinet. And while he abused the SVR guy for equivocating, uh, all of those women and men, all of their power, all their status, all their prestige, and most importantly, all of their money is available to them only because of the existence of Vladimir Putin. And so anybody that has any idea that regime change is possible in this wacky time, not from those people, because they have a vested interest in preserving Vladimir Putin because their financial structure is all tied up into this complicated mafia-like money laundering system that guess who created it? Vladimir Putin. But in Ukraine, I mean, if you look, he was as far back as 1984, he was complaining about the evolution of Ukraine into, into a, 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 a nation state that quite frankly was becoming unappealing to him. And so his special operation, which I find an interesting euphemism, you know, was all about the eradication and extermination of Ukrainian identity. This isn't about a war. This isn't about traditional conflict. This isn't about large-scale conflict. This is about the extermination of Ukraine by the eradication of their society, their culture, their language, their history. And it's all about punishing. It's all about a seething, obsessive, you know, hyper-emotional anger by Vladimir Putin. And I only say that in a very dramatic way, obviously. It's like, you're not going to negotiate your way out of it with this guy. He's committed. Every fiber, every cell of his body, the entire helix of every bit of his genetic makeup is all about the eradication and extermination of Ukraine. I think all of us, myself included, even though I spent some time in Ukraine, uh, were surprised at the, at the ability for Ukraine to survive under what we anticipated to be a withering assault by the Russian military. And fortunately for us, two things intervened in that. One was the courage, determination, resilience, the imagination, and the innovation of, of the Ukrainian people. 
you know, fueled by the fact that they're fighting for their very survival. Because what I said about the eradication and extermination and annihilation of Ukraine, that was very clear to the Ukrainian people. And if you're facing that kind of, of, of destruction, and you're going to fight literally to the death. You're going to fight to the end. The second factor was that the Russian military and everything that supported it, you know, was a byproduct of this whole culture of deception and lying and prevarication and, dis- and, and, uh, and, and corruption. And so that that bit of the Russian society and the Russian government and the Russian structures and the Russian culture produced an army that can't fight. It can't lead. It, it has, you know, really bad equipment. And quite frankly, you, you, you bring two of those together, the Ukrainian determination, Western support against what was a hollow military, poorly led, poor soldiers, poor equipment, poor experience in a culture of deception. And you give advantage to the Ukrainians, you know, almost, you know, without, without question. And then obviously the Western support to Ukraine, you know, particularly in air defenses as, a, as an example. And then, uh, as you mentioned, which was the, uh, the allied soft experience in Ukraine. I think we're also seeing, I don't, don't say it is, it was the only thing that has allowed the Ukrainian military to prevail on the battlefield. But I think our long term intimate collaborative cooperation and relationship at the lowest levels of our respective militaries in developing relationships to just, you know, all that thing I talked about, CIA and SOF, existed there with allied SOF and Ukrainian military structures. I think those relationships, that capacity building certainly has proven itself the worth of that investment because we've seen it on the battlefield. And I think that kind of improvement in leadership and soldiership and capacity and testing and training and doing all of that, I think has bled out into other aspects, the more traditional aspects of, of the Ukrainian military. And of course, we've had significant military to military, you know, engagement as well. Uh, both in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine and provision of weapons and capabilities. So back to you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, This is a point when in our podcast, we take pause and we say thanks to everybody in the general public for listening. And then if you want to listen to the whole podcast, and we're about to get to some really interesting stuff, um, then you should become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. It helps us uh, do this. Um, and, uh, uh, I think you'll find all the extra content that you'll get as a result of it well worth the small investment, roughly the price of a latte. I'm told I've never had a latte. I've never had a cup of coffee, but we're not going to get into that. Um, uh, 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 so, uh, to those of you in the general public, thanks, uh, and, uh, uh go become a member. And for those of you who are members, stand by.